Hello everyone and welcome to our podcast Uncuff India by One Future Collective. My name is Sanchi and my pronouns are she her. My name is Atanshi and my pronouns are she and her. We are your hosts today and it's so good to have you all listening in. In today's episode, we will unpack the meaning of violence in the context of state agencies and explore whether states can be perpetrators of violence themselves. If yes, we will also explore how this violence can manifest and discuss whether and how accountability from the state can be demanded. Yes, states and state agencies are really seen as perpetrators of violence and harm, especially against their own citizens. They are in fact often seen as agencies which protect and act in the best interests of their citizens, which is how we might want it to be. However, this may not always be the case. It is possible that the state engages in covert forms of violence against their citizens for many different reasons. To discuss this and to share their insights on this particular theme with us at One Future Collective, we have with us the lovely Chandni Chawla. Chandni is a human rights lawyer from Bombay who practices criminal law at the Bombay High Court and the lower courts as well. She represents a variety of clients from those accused of charges of terrorism as well as towards bodily offences. She also focuses on providing legal aid to women under trial prisoners who are unable to afford legal representation and to survivors of gender-based violence. Thank you so much Chandni for taking the time out to join us today. We're very excited to hear from you and learn from your insights. Thank you Sanchi and Utanchi. Uh, Thank you very much for having me. I'm uh, I am very excited for this podcast as well. And this is a great topic uh, to have a podcast on. Lovely. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us, Chandni. And let us dive right in and begin dissecting the topic at hand. Uh, Chandni, let us first talk about what you think of state violence. Do you think that states can engage in committing violence against their own citizens? And if yes, then what different forms can such violence take place in? I mean, my answer is an absolute yes. I mean, especially with my experience as a defense lawyer, a defense criminal lawyer. I mean, in the work i do especially we engage with the state every day it's it's our every day the opponents are the state and the different kinds of violence we see is just rampant so uh, i think state violence can definitely be in the form of physical violence and that's very obvious we see it in our everyday lives we see it when we open the newspaper but i think it can also take form of other violence which are non physical so i would first like to talk about the physical forms of violence and especially um, speaking from my experiences the physical forms of violence which i see around me every every day are is custodial torture is violence which takes place within the four corners of the police station it's violence which takes place the moment somebody is accused of a crime and the entire process which goes in the interrogation of that person right and violence is used and even though it is physical violence at at many times that physical violence cannot be seen and that is why to prevent that kind of physical violence there are various supreme court judgments which say that there you know there have to be cctv cameras installed in every police station this is to ensure that there is no custodial violence but despite this custodial violence is very rampant and i, I definitely see it in my experiences as a lawyer but moving on i mean apart from violence perpetrated in custody we also see violence on the roads right for example if there is a policy if there is a document which people want to oppose 
and they want to take to the streets they want to protest we definitely see at many times that the state in the form of the police or other forces perpetrates violence against students against protesters we see them getting lati charged we see people opening tear gases so definitely we see physical forms of violence uh, especially when somebody is opposing the state and the state policy there is also other forms of violence we see which i call violence it's it's in the form of intentional spreading of misinformation we see that happening a lot by the state agencies we see a lot of trolling on twitter and other social media platforms we see a lot of misinformation being spread by popular media which is controlled directly or indirectly by the state so i would think that this is also definitely a form of violence we definitely see violence where people want to speak out against the state and and when they try to do that when they write against the state their voices are suppressed they are either you know accused in false cases they have to uh, be imprisoned for those cases for many many years so i think to answer your question yes state the state is one of the biggest perpetrators of violence uh, in my mind thank you so much chandni uh, for that and while you were speaking i was just trying to understand you know how wide the meaning and scope of something like violence can really be uh, traditionally we've only understood that to be physical forms of violence but hearing you speak i'm also realizing there are sometimes non physical types of violence sometimes you know violence that we can very easily look against or look past or ignore because we're not seeing it cause direct physical harm onto anybody um so thank you for sharing these different types of violence is definitely making me think in a certain direction um that is quite helpful to get a sense of how we should be thinking when we're talking about state violence and how it may not always be as easily detectable as it may be in some other spaces um while we're talking about this do you think that it's important for us to be able to address and call out such violence that the state engages in and by us i mean us as citizens but also as activists as human rights organizations um any other stakeholders involved in the process right anybody that's not the state do you think it's important for us to be able to call it out i think absolutely i mean non state actors have a huge role to play when it comes to calling out violence uh, from the perpetrated by the state and this is actually a very difficult process but i think it is it becomes very important to have checks and balances in place so the state as a machinery does have checks and balances in place for example the judiciary is a check and balance right but apart from that as citizens i think civic participation is extremely important in any democracy we say that the state is by the people for the people and of the people right and how do we hold them accountable becomes a very important question but before that it's very important to do that because if we say it's the state by us for us and of us so they are supposed to be accountable to us right so i'm not sure if you've heard of the jawab dehi andolan which is a movement which is taking place in rajasthan some of the people who are involved in this i mean i work with them so this is a movement to press the government to come up with an accountability bill right as we are talking about accountability as we are talking about calling out state violence i think this is an extremely important step that through the legislature we are trying to bring about a law for accountability of the government towards its people and why is this important right 
for any good governance for any state to observe human rights where they are signatories to so many treaties on human rights i think it's important it's a role of every citizen to hold the state accountable and i think we as say civil society activists students are very privileged in some sense on the other because we do understand how the state machinery works and i feel it is our responsibility not just to hold the state accountable but to spread awareness among the other population who do not know how the state works right so i think it becomes extremely important because you know the movement from democracy to non democracy to other forms of government to fascism is extremely slow and we might not even be aware that it might be taking place so to prevent that the only way is taking action every day taking small action every day being aware being aware of our rights making others aware of their rights and uh, just calling the state off if we feel that there are any policies if there there is violence which they are perpetrating whether it's physical violence or non physical violence so it is extremely extremely important to call out state violence especially in a democracy thank you so much for bringing all those very pertinent points chandni i think uh, through what you've shared we have now clearly established that the state can and does in many many different ways inflict violence against citizens and uh, we've also seen through what you shared why it may be important to call this out and also what might happen if this goes unchecked and uh, thank you also for uh, giving us the example of the jawabdehi andolan and for us to be able to see how this might be done in action uh, what are some ways through which we can call out such violence that the state state is engaging in uh, but i want to go a little back to something that you pointed out and uh, discuss more about that you said that it might be difficult for us to uh, at first recognize and call out this violence so i'm just wondering what makes it so difficult to address this violence that is perpetrated by the state thank you for that question i think it's a very pertinent question and the answer to that is not a straightforward answer because the state is such a powerful agency so there is a huge power imbalance between the states and its citizens and in such a scenario when there is a huge power imbalance calling out the one which has the most power is going to be difficult and it is always difficult uh, and you know there is an innate sense of legitimacy which the state gets because of its nature of being the state right and in such a scenario addressing acknowledging that the state can perpetrate violence and calling out the state violence can become very difficult to give you an example we can see what's happening in the past couple of years right people who are calling out state violence they are being accused in false cases the biggest case which comes to my mind is the bima koregao case where so many activists lawyers students journalists who are working in their individual capacities who are trying to hold the state accountable are now presently in custody for the past almost 4 years we've lost one of them because he was 83 years old there are many more who are still very old and are suffering and it's only because of speaking out against the state that they are in custody today and it's not just them right there are many journalists many whistleblowers who have to face the blowback only because of speaking 
So when this happens, when we see this in our everyday life around us, when we read about this in newspapers, it creates a fear psychosis. I mean, I see it today that at least I feel it today that students, for example, today do have a sense of fear uh, when if they feel that they need to speak out, that they are being extremely cautious. I'm not saying it's not good to be cautious. It is extremely good to be cautious. But at the same time, why should one feel the need to be cautious to call out the state? So I think it's firstly the fear psychosis. People feel that there might be consequences for speaking out against the state. For example, there might even be consequences for holding this podcast. I mean, I don't know. We never know, right? With the kind of uh, surveillance which is taking place in today's country. And this makes it extremely difficult to speak out against the violence perpetrated by the state. This makes it extremely difficult for people. So, for example, when if, you know, we go to different areas and try to mobilize people, you can sense that fear psychosis. You can sense that, ki, you know, if I speak out, there might be consequences. There might be there might be other consequences which I might face because of speaking out against the state. So that is something which makes it very, very difficult uh, to speak out against the state. There's also major, majoritarian support which the state naturally enjoys being the state. So speaking out against the majority is always going to be difficult and has always been difficult. So I think this these are some of the reasons uh, which make it very difficult to speak out against the state. Chandni, as you were speaking, I was also thinking to another point that was coming up while uh, while you were sharing your reflection is that there is also so much attached to the state, right? Uh, so many of my welfare schemes, so much of my documentation. It is not just, I think, the fear that I will get arrested or I will get beaten up. But then it goes back to the previous conversation we were having about how this fear of violence, this fear of... Uh, of being treated differently by the state can manifest in in other forms as well, which take away from my ability to lead a life where I still continue to have access to welfare schemes, where I still continue to have access to some services which are attached to the state government by virtue of it being the government itself. Um, and while we're thinking about all that, and I think you've already given us a few examples of state violence in the Indian context, but I was thinking it may be useful for our listeners and for us to set some more context uh, for the conversation we've been having so far by you sharing with us a few examples of what does state violence look like in India? Are there any examples of it? Or would you like to elaborate on the examples you've already given just for us to develop that understanding? Taking my example of, say, custodial violence forward, I only spoke about it broadly, but it's very important to understand that there are various intersections involved and there is intersectional violence which the state perpetrates, right? We've seen violence against minorities, violence against the disabled, violence against the LGBT population, violence against transgender, which is much more rampant as compared to violence against an able-bodied upper caste person. At least according to my experience, it is very important to keep intersectionality in mind when we speak about violence. So, I'll just give you an example of a uh, of a state policy. So, for example, the Kerala government came out with a policy. They advertised for the post of a female housekeeping staff. There was separate advertisement for male housekeeping staff and separate advertising for female housekeeping staff. So, a trans person who identifies as a woman applied to the post for the female housekeeping staff. 
but the kerala government refused to give them that post so when this went up to court and this was challenged the court recognized that this is an exclusionary policy that you only have advertisements for the post of a female and a male housekeeping staff the court in this case it's a very recent case it was only like 10 days ago acknowledged and went on and uh, quashed this policy and said that the the trans person who identifies as a woman can definitely apply to the post of a female housekeeping staff so this policy in my mind is a state of is a policy is an example of violence right it is a form of violence it might not seem like violence because as we spoke that what comes to our mind when we talk about violence is only physical violence but exclusionary laws are the biggest 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 example of the state perpetrating violence a couple of years ago we saw the entire debate which was taking place around uh, caa and nrc right and at that point of time we could see the impact of these laws on the minority community we could see the impact of these laws on people who are disabled on trans folks and nobody spoke we spoke I mean people spoke about it i'm not saying they didn't speak about it but i think it's very important to identify intersections when it comes to violence and understand the impact of violence on people who are who belong to marginalized communities or belong to minorities as i was speaking we've also seen violence against students against protesters we've seen it in i've seen it during my college days i don't know if you both have seen it during your college days but i've definitely seen it rampant when students take out rallies when they do come out and oppose laws they do face backlash not just from the state but from their university itself right and where is that coming that's coming because the university is fearing the state if the university is a public funded university the university will fear that the state might stop funding them when we spoke of welfare schemes when we spoke of policies if i go to a slum today and try to mobilize them to speak against the state they might feel that no tomorrow probably the water will get cut out in my area i might not get my ration from my uh, kirana shop so this is the impact and this is the fear which makes it extremely difficult to to speak out against the state and as we spoke that you know spreading misinformation is is the biggest biggest form of violence which we see in today's world and that is happening all the time i mean in a way people are calling it whatsapp university but i do see that fake information is spread about different policies about different schemes of the government and which are circulated on whatsapp to various people so this in itself is also a instance of state violence we at least uh, to add on i mean in my experiences as a criminal lawyer we do see state agencies which go ahead and plant evidence against the accused all the time we see it all the time so if they can go to the extent of planting evidence the instances of wrongful prosecution in the country are extremely high so as i was saying right that if the state can go to the extent of planting evidence and that happens i mean i see it in practice almost every day so you can only imagine the other forms of violence which the state is perpetrating and we are not even aware of that right and i think invisible forms of violence are also which 
exist and it is extremely difficult to even understand that this is a form of violence and is taking place against us so as i was saying right like at least physical forms of violence i see it around me as a practitioner all the time and as i spoke about exclusionary laws about exclusionary policies welfare schemes means other forms of violence which we don't need to speak out against so yeah these are some of the examples of violence which come to my mind thanks so much for taking us through those extremely important manifestations of state violence in our country chandni i think i'll also speak for our listeners when i say that listening to you today has really broadened my understanding of what violence itself can look like and what are the different ways in which it comes out through the state agencies and i think uh, especially the examples of exclusionary policies that you shared of how the law itself functions in such binary ways and how that becomes uh, a a tool of violence i think that has really got me thinking and it has definitely given me lots to think about more as well even after our conversation ends and uh, how just uh, exclusionary policies then as tools of violence ensure the marginalization or the further marginalization of already marginalized groups like you also shared how the uh, caa and nrc uh, at that time how we weren't really looking at the impact it had on already marginalized groups such as people with disabilities as trans people and how much this really matters and the weight of these has really got me thinking and i'm wondering about possible resolutions for this now so chandni what do you think what does accountability look like in such cases and how can it be made possible i think i think that's a question we all need to keep discussing to come up with uh, practical solutions right i mean it's a question which to which an answer, there cannot be a concrete answer but it should be an ongoing debate so the first step according to me is at least starting a debate and to have an ongoing debate on this particular question on how do we make the state accountable and that will only happen through mobilization through spreading awareness through holding for example workshops through holding awareness sessions especially for people who do not have access to information right as i was speaking that we are all very privileged because we have access to information but there are a huge list of citizens who do not have access to information who do not have access to enough news so if we are able to reach that population of the country and if we are able to spread awareness just awareness about state policies to people and i think just start questioning each policy do you think this policy is exclusionary do you think this policy is inclusive do you how does this policy benefit you does this policy harm anyone if we are able to start these discussions and debates i think we will move closer to accountability in the near future for example the movement for rti right the right to information was one in my mind one of the biggest movements for accountability and it's only after years of struggle years of mobilization that today we do have a law of rti and we do have the right to collect information and that's only been possible through mobilization through of through spreading awareness the other thing which comes to my mind is as i was saying that it becomes extremely difficult to speak against the state because of the power structures right 
so if we are able to break these power structures if we are able to get power into our hands as citizens and that will happen only through changing vote bank politics right that will happen only when more and more people realize the value of the vote the value of their vote it is only then that the state the power imbalance which exists between the state and the citizens today will reduce so participation in democracy participation in democratic processes is also very important to demand demand accountability and uh, make sure that the state is accountable to its citizens so i think yeah these are some of the instances which come to my mind and definitely right it is extremely important to challenge exclusionary policies for example the kerala example i gave you if the trans person wouldn't have challenged that policy that would just go unnoticed so it becomes very important that where we feel that a certain policy is exclusionary or biased or discriminatory it is very important to challenge that policy in courts and we do have a separation of powers uh, within how the state functions today right we do have the judiciary which is an independent body which can look into state policies and mechanisms so it becomes very important according to me to keep questioning and to keep challenging state policies wherever we feel they are exclusionary and discriminatory thank you so much anni and i fully agree with you when you said that you know if we start talking about this it's a conversation that can go on for as long as time um we are really thankful to hear from you to learn from your everyday experiences and your expertise in this matter um thank you so much for taking the time out to be able to have this conversation with us once again uh, we're really thankful very grateful for you and to be able to have this conversation with you uh before we close do you have any closing thoughts on this entire conversation anything you'd like to share with our listeners for them to take back home anything that's coming up for you chandni yeah thank you danshi firstly thank you for having me over uh as law, last thoughts as i've said throughout this podcast right that i feel it is extremely important to keep questioning and it is extremely important to keep the debate alive so my only last thought is that whatever you see around yourself which relates to a state policy which relates to use any state action i think it's very important for everyone to question and to challenge the state policy if you feel it is exclusionary so questioning will only make you think more and which will only take you closer to understanding the internal biases you carry right like as we said that we feel the state because of its nature of being the state cannot go wrong so it is very important for each one of us to challenge these notions and it's only then i think that we will see true change and uh, we'll be able to challenge state policies and understand violence a little better so yeah i think these are my closing remarks and thank you very much for holding this podcast and i do hope that you you that ofc keeps hosting such podcasts in the future and this is one of the ways where the ofc is conducting these debates and which is one of the ways to actually keep the state accountable so this is acting the podcast in itself is an example of uh, demanding accountability for the state which is great so thank you very much for having me thank you so much for joining us today channi and uh, i think that i will speak for everybody who's listening in to say that we have indeed learned a lot and 
We are very, very happy to have had you today. Uh, and as Utanshi said, thanks a lot for your time. Thanks once again. Thank you for tuning in today. Please leave us any questions you may have as voice notes on Anchor or in our DMs. We would love to hear from you. This podcast is brought to you by One Future Collective. Yes, thank you so much. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at One Future Collective and at One Future underscore India on Twitter. And keep an eye out for future episodes out every second and fourth Thursday of the month. Until next time.